Chapter Two, Part Two of the Narrative of a Revolutionary Soldier by Joseph Plum Martin. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Two, Part Two: The Campaign of Seventeen Seventy Six. One anecdote which I have seen more than once in print, I will notice. A certain man, or the friends of a certain man, have said that this certain man was sitting by the highway side when the commander-in-chief passed by, and asked him why he sat there. His answer, as he or they say, was, that he had rather be killed or taken by the enemy than trodden to death by cowards. A brave man, he. I doubt whether there was such another there that day, and I much doubt whether he himself was there, under such circumstances as he or his friends relate. Every man that I saw was endeavouring by all sober means to escape from death or captivity, which, at that period of the war, was almost certain death. The men were confused, being without officers to command them. I do not recollect of seeing a commissioned officer from the time I left the lines on the banks of the East River in the morning until I met with the gentlemanly one in the evening. How could the men fight without officers? The man who represented himself as being so valiant was a braggadocia, and I never yet met with one of that class who was not at heart a sheer coward. We lay that night upon the ground which the regiment occupied when I came up with it. The next day, in the forenoon, the enemy, as we expected, followed us hard up, and were advancing through a level field. Our rangers and some few other light troops, under the command of Colonel Knowlton of Connecticut, and Major Leach of, I believe, Virginia, were in waiting for them. Seeing them advancing, the rangers, etc., concealed themselves in a deep gully overgrown with bushes. Upon the western verge of this defile was a post and rail fence, and over that the forementioned field. Our people let the enemy advance until they arrived at the fence, when they arose and poured in a volley upon them. How many of the enemy were killed and wounded could not be known as the British were always as careful as Indians to conceal their losses. There were doubtless some killed, as I myself counted nineteen ball-holes through a single rail of the fence at which the enemy were standing when the action began. The British gave back, and our people advanced into the field. The action soon became warm. Colonel Knowlton, a brave man, and commander of the detachment, fell in the early part of the engagement. It was said by those who saw it, that he lost his valuable life by unadvisedly exposing himself singly to the enemy. In my boyhood I had been acquainted with him. He was a brave man and an excellent citizen. Major Leach fell soon after, and the troops who were then engaged were left with no higher commanders than their captains, but they still kept the enemy retreating. Our regiment was now ordered into the field, and we arrived on the ground just as the retreating enemy were entering a thick wood, a circumstance as disagreeable to them as it was agreeable to us at that period of the war. We soon came to action with them. The troops engaged, being reinforced by our regiment, kept them still retreating, until they found shelter under the cannon of some of their shipping, lying in the North River. We remained on the battleground till nearly sunset, expecting the enemy to attack us again, but they showed no such inclination that day. The men were very much fatigued and faint, having had nothing to eat for forty-eight hours. At least the greater part were in this condition, and I among the rest. While standing on the field, after the action had ceased, one of the men near the lieutenant-colonel complained of being hungry. The colonel, putting his hand into his coat pocket, took out a piece of an ear of Indian corn, burnt as black as coal. 
Here, said he to the man complaining, eat this and learn to be a soldier. We now returned to camp, if camp it was. Our tent held the whole regiment and might have held ten millions more. When we arrived on the ground we had occupied previous to going into action, we found that our invalids, consisting of the sick, the lame, and the lazy, had obtained some fresh beef. Where the commissaries found the beef, or the men found the commissaries, in this time of confusion, I know not, nor did I stop to ask. They were broiling the beef on small sticks, in Indian style, round blazing fires, made of dry chestnut rails. The meat, when cooked, was as black as a coal on the outside, and as raw on the inside as if it had not been near the fire. I asked no questions for conscience's sake, but fell to and helped myself to a feast of this raw beef, without bread or salt. We had eight or ten of our regiment killed in the action, and a number wounded, but none of them belonged to our company. Our lieutenant-colonel was hit by a grape-shot, which went through his coat, waistcoat, and shirt, to the skin on his shoulder, without doing any other damage than cutting up his epaulet. A circumstance occurred on the evening after this action, which, although trifling in its nature, excited in me feelings which I shall never forget. When we came off the field we brought away a man who had been shot dead upon the spot, and after we had refreshed ourselves we proceeded to bury him. Having provided a grave, which was near a gentleman's country seat, at that time occupied by the commander-in-chief, we proceeded, just in the dusk of the evening, to commit the poor man, then far from friends and relatives, to the bosom of his mother earth. Just as we had laid him in the grave, in as decent a posture as existing circumstances would admit, there came from the house, towards the grave, two young ladies, who appeared to be sisters. As they approached the grave, the soldiers immediately made way for them, with those feelings of respect which beauty and modesty combined seldom fail to produce, which especially when, as in this instance, accompanied by piety. Upon arriving at the head of the grave they stopped, and with their arms round each other's neck, stooped forward and looked into it, and with a sweet pensiveness of countenance which might have warmed the heart of a misogynist, asked if we were going to put the earth upon his naked face. Being answered in the affirmative, one of them took a fine white gauze handkerchief from her neck and desired that it might be spread upon his face, tears at the same time flowing down their cheeks. After the grave was filled up they retired to the house in the same manner they came. Although the dead soldier had no acquaintance present, for there were none at his burial who knew him, yet he had mourners, and females too, worthy young ladies. You and such as you are deserving the regard of the greatest of men. What sisters, what wives, what mothers, and what neighbors would you make? Such a sight as those ladies afforded at that time, and on that occasion, was worthy, and doubtless received the attention of angels. Another affair which transpired during and after the above-mentioned engagement deserves to be recorded by me, as no one else has to my knowledge ever mentioned it. A sergeant belonging to the Connecticut forces, being sent by his officers in the heat of the action to procure ammunition, was met by a superior officer, an aide-de-camp to some general officer, I believe, who accused him of deserting his post in time of action. He remonstrated with the officer, and informed him of the absolute necessity there was of his obeying the orders of his own officers, that the failure of his procuring a supply of ammunition might endanger the success of the day. But all to no purpose, the officer would not allow himself to believe him, 
but drew his sword and threatened to take his life on the spot if he did not immediately return to his corps. The sergeant, fired with just indignation at hearing and seeing his life threatened, cocked his musket and stood in his own defense. He was, however, taken, confined, and tried for mutiny and condemned to be shot. The sentence of the court-martial was approved by the commander-in-chief, and the day for his execution set. When it arrived, an embankment was thrown up to prevent the shot fired at him from doing other damage, and all things requisite on such occasions were in readiness. The Connecticut troops were then drawn out and formed in a square, and the prisoner brought forth. After being blindfolded and pinioned, he knelt upon the ground. The corporal with his six executioners were then brought up before him, ready, at the fatal word of command, to send a brave soldier into the eternal world, because he persisted in doing his duty and obeying the lawful and urgent orders of his superior officers, the failure of which might, for aught the officer who stopped him knew, have caused the loss of hundreds of lives. But the sergeant was reprieved, and I believe that it was well that he was, for his blood would not have been the only blood that would have been spilt. The troops were greatly exasperated, and they showed what their feelings were, by their lively and repeated cheerings after the reprieve, but more so by their secret and open threats before it. The reprieve was read by one of the chaplains of the army, after a long harangue to the soldiers, setting forth the enormity of the crime charged upon the prisoner, repeatedly using this sentence, crimes for which men ought to die, which did much to further the resentment of the troops already raised to a high pitch. But, as I said before, it was well that it ended as it did, both on account of the honor of the soldiers and the safety of some others. I was informed that this same sergeant was honored, the year following, by those who better knew his merits, with a captain's commission. We remained here till some time in the month of October, without anything very material transpiring, excepting starvation, and that had by this time become quite a secondary matter. Hard duty and nakedness were considered the prime evils, for the reader will recollect that we lost all our clothing in the Kipps Bay affair. The British were quite indulgent to us, not having interrupted our happiness since the check they received in the action before mentioned, but left us at our leisure to see that they did not get amongst us before we were appraised of their approach, and that, in all its bearings, was enough. It now began to be cool weather, especially the nights. To have to lie, as I did, almost every night, for our duty required it, on the cold and often wet ground, without a blanket, and with nothing but thin summer clothing, was tedious. I have often, while upon guard, lain on one side until the upper side smarted with cold, then turned that side down to the place warmed by my body, and let the other take its turn at smarting, while the one on the ground warmed, thus alternately turning for four or six hours, till called upon to go on sentry, as the soldiers term it and when relieved from a tour of two long hours at that business and returned to the guard again have had to go through the operation of freezing and thawing for four or six hours more in the morning the ground as white as snow with hoar-frost or perhaps it would rain all night like a flood all that could be done in that case was to lie down if one could lie down take our musket in our arms and place the lock between our thighs and weather it out a simple affair happened while I was upon guard at a time, while we were here, which made considerable disturbance amongst the guard and caused me some extra hours of fatigue at the time. As I was the cause of it at first, I will relate it. The guard consisted of nearly two hundred men, commanded by a field officer. We kept a long chain of sentinels, 
placed almost within speaking distance of each other, and, being in close neighborhood with the enemy, we were necessitated to be pretty alert. I was upon my post as sentinel, about the middle of the night, thinking we had undergone the time in which we ought to have been relieved. I stepped a little off my post towards one of the next sentries, it being quite dark, and asked him in a low voice how long he had been on sentry. He started as if attacked by the enemy, and roared out, "'Who comes there?' I saw I had alarmed him, and stole back to my post as quick as possible. He still kept up his cry, "'Who comes there?' And receiving no answer, he discharged his piece, which alarmed the whole guard, who immediately formed and prepared for action, and sent off a non-commissioned officer and file of men to ascertain the cause of alarm. They came first to the man who had fired, and asked him what was the matter. He said that someone had made an abrupt advance upon his premises, and demanded, "'How comes you on, sentry?' They next came to me, inquiring what I had seen. I told them that I had not seen or heard anything to alarm me, but what the other sentinel had caused. The men returned to the guard, and we were soon relieved, which was all that I wanted. Upon our return to the guard I found, as was to be expected, that the alarm was the subject of general conversation among them. They were confident that a spy or something worse had been amongst us, and consequently greater vigilance was necessary. We were accordingly kept the rest of the night under arms, and I cursed my indiscretion for causing the disturbance, as I could get no more rest during the night. I could have set all to rights by speaking a word, but it would not do for me to betray my own secret. But it was diverting to me to see how much the story gained by being carried about, both among the guard and after its arrival in the camp. I had been one night upon a picket guard, that is, a guard only for the night. Having been dismissed early in the morning, I was returning through a by-road to my quarters. This road led from the main road to the shore of the North River. I was alone, the rest of the guard having, for some cause which I have now forgotten, passed on and were out of sight. I saw General Putnam on horseback and alone coming up the road in my rear. In my front, and nearer to me than I was to the general, was a high fence and a set of high and very heavy bars, composed of pretty large poles or young trees. I had only just to go through the bars and cross another fence on my left, and I should be in the deep gully and at the very spot where the late action began. This was the way I was actually to go to reach the camp. The general, seeing me near the bars, bawled out, Soldier, let down those bars. I was then at the bars, but seeing that the general was some distance off, I took down one bar and slipped through, leaving him to let the bars down himself. He was apparently in a dreadful passion. Drawing a pistol from his holsters, he came after me to the bars with his usual exclamation, Curse ye! But I was where he could not see me, although I could see him and hear him too. I was safe, and perhaps it was as well for me that I was, for I verily believe the old fellow would have shot me, or endeavored to have done it if he could have got within reach of me. Thus was my life twice threatened by him, here and at the wine cellar in New York, but I was not much afraid of his putting either of his threats into execution. Sometime in October the British landed at Frog's Neck, or Point, and by their motions seemed to threaten to cut off our retreat to York Island. We were thereupon ordered to leave the island. We crossed King's Bridge and directed our course toward the White Plains. We saw parties of the enemy foraging in the country, but they were generally too alert for us. We encamped on the heights called Valentine's Hill, where we continued some days, keeping up the old system of starving. 
a sheep's head which I begged of the butchers, who were killing some for the gentlemen officers, was all the provisions I had for two or three days. While lying here, I one day rambled into the woods and fields in order, if possible, to procure something to satisfy the cravings of nature. I found and ate a considerable quantity of chestnuts, which are, as Bloomfield says of his acorns, hot thirsty food, which was, I suppose, the cause of our doctor's blunder, as I shall relate directly. I returned to camp just at sunset, and met our orderly sergeant, who immediately warned me to prepare for a two-day's command. What is termed going on command is what is generally called going on a scouting party, or something similar. I told the sergeant I was sick and could not go. He said I must go to the doctor, and if he said I was unfit for duty, he must excuse me. I saw our surgeon's mate close by, endeavoring to cook his supper, blowing the fire and scratching his eyes. We both stepped up to him, and he felt my pulse, at the same time very demurely shutting his eyes while I was laughing in his face. After a minute's consultation with his medical talisman, he very gravely told the sergeant that I was unfit for duty, having a high fever upon me. I was as well as he was. All the medicine I needed was a belly full of victuals. The sergeant turned to go off for another man, when I told him that I would go, for I meant to go. I only felt a little cross, and did not know how just then to vent my spleen in any other way. I had much rather go on such an expedition than stay in camp, as I stood some chance while in the country to get something to eat. But I admired the doctor's skill, although perhaps not more extraordinary than that of many others of the faculty. We marched from Valentine's Hill for the White Plains in the night. There were but three of our men present. We had our cooking utensils, at that time the most useless things in the army, to carry in our hands. They were made of cast iron and consequently heavy. I was so beat out before morning with hunger and fatigue that I could hardly move one foot before the other. I told my messmates that I could not carry our kettle further. They said they would not carry it any further. Of what use was it? They had nothing to cook and did not want anything to cook with. We were sitting on the ascent of a hill when this discourse happened. We got up to proceed. When I took up the kettle, which held nearly a common pailful, I could not carry it. My arms were almost dislocated. I sat it down in the road, and one of the others gave it a shove with his foot, and it rolled down against the fence, and that was the last I ever saw of it. When we got through the night's march we found our mess was not the only one that was rid of their iron bondage. We arrived at the White Plains just at dawn of day, tired and faint. Encamped on the plains a few days, and then removed to the hills in their rear of the plains. Nothing remarkable transpired while lying here for some time. One day, after roll call, one of my messmates with me sat off upon a little jaunt into the country to get some sauce of some kind or other. We soon came to a field of English turnips, but the owner was there, and we could not get any of them without paying for them in some way or other. We soon agreed with the man to pull and cut off the tops of the turnips at the halves until we got as many as we needed. After the good man had sat us to work and chatted with us a few minutes, he went off and left us. After he was gone, we had pulled out and cut as many as we wanted. We packed them up and decamped, leaving the owner of the turnips to pull his share himself. When we arrived at the camp, the troops were all parading. Upon inquiry, we found that the British were advancing upon us. We flung our turnip plunder into the tent, packed up our things, which was easily done, for we had but a trifle to pack, and fell into the ranks. 
Before we were ready to march, the battle had begun. Our regiment then marched off, crossed a considerable stream of water which crosses the plain, and formed behind a stone wall in company with several other regiments, and waited the approach of the enemy. They were not far distant, at least that part of them with which we were quickly after engaged. They were constructing a sort of bridge to convey their artillery, etc., across the before-mentioned stream. They, however, soon made their appearance in our neighborhood. There was in our front, about ten rods distant, an orchard of apple-trees. The ground on which the orchard stood was lower than the ground that we occupied, but was level from our post to the verge of the orchard, when it fell off so abruptly that we could not see the lower parts of the trees. A party of Hessian troops, and some English, soon took possession of this ground. They would advance so far as just to show themselves above the rising ground, fire, and fall back and reload their muskets. Our chance upon them was, as soon as they showed themselves above the level ground, or when they fired, to aim at the flashes of their guns. Their position was as advantageous to them as a breastwork. We were engaged in this manner for some time, when finding ourselves flanked and in danger of being surrounded, we were compelled to make a hasty retreat from the stone wall. We lost, comparatively speaking, very few at the fence, but when forced to retreat, we lost, in killed and wounded, a considerable number. One man who belonged to our company, when we marched from the parade, said, Now I am going out to the field to be killed. And he said more than once afterwards that he should be killed, and he was. He was shot dead on the field. I never saw a man so prepossessed with the idea of any mishap as he was. We fell back a little distance and made a stand, detached parties engaging in almost every direction. We did not come in contact with the enemy again that day, and just at night we fell back to our encampment. In the course of the afternoon the British took possession of a hill on the right of our encampment, which had in the early part of the day been occupied by some of the New York troops. This hill overlooked the one upon which we were, and was not more than half or three-fourths of a mile distant. The enemy had several pieces of field artillery upon this hill, and, as might be expected, entertained us with their music all the evening. We entrenched ourselves where we now lay, expecting another attack. But the British were very civil, and indeed they generally were, after they received a check from Brother Jonathan for any of their rude actions. They seldom repeated them, at least not till the affair that caused the reprimand had ceased in some measure to be remembered. During the night we remained in our new-made trenches, the ground of which was in many parts springy. In that part where I happened to be stationed, the water, before morning, was nearly over shoes, which caused many of us to take violent colds, by being exposed upon the wet ground after a profuse perspiration. I was one who felt the effects of it, and was the next day sent back to the baggage to get well again, if I could, for it was left to my own exertions to do it, and no other assistance was afforded me. I was not alone in misery. There were a number in the same circumstances. When I arrived at the baggage, which was not more than a mile or two, I had the canopy of heaven for my hospital, and the ground for my hammock. I found a spot where the dry leaves had collected between the knolls. I made up a bed of these, and nestled in it, having no other friend present but the sun to smile upon me. I had nothing to eat or drink, not even water, and was unable to go after any myself, for I was sick indeed. In the evening one of my messmates found me out, and soon after brought me some boiled hog's flesh, it was not pork, and turnips, without either bread or salt. 
I could not eat it, but I felt obliged to him notwithstanding. He did all he could do. He gave me the best he had to give, and had to steal that poor fellow. Necessity drove him to do it to satisfy the cravings of his own hunger, as well as to assist a fellow sufferer. The British, soon after this, left the White Plains and passed the Hudson, into New Jersey. We, likewise, fell back to Newcastle and Wright's Mill. Here a number of our sick were sent off to Norfolk, in Connecticut, to recruit. I was sent with them as a nurse. We were billeted among the inhabitants. I had in my ward seven or eight sick soldiers, who were, at least soon after their arrival there, as well in health as I was. All they wanted was a cook and something for a cook to exercise his functions upon. The inhabitants here were almost entirely what were in those days termed Tories. An old lady, of whom I often procured milk, used always, when I went to her house, to give me a lecture on my opposition to our good King George. She had always said, she told me, that the regulars would make us fly like pigeons. My patients would not use any of the milk I had of her, for fear, as they said, of poison. I told them I was not afraid of her poisoning the milk. She had not wit enough to think of such a thing, nor resolution enough to do it if she did think of it. The man of the house where I was quartered had a smart-looking negro man, a great politician. I chanced one day to go into the barn where he was threshing. He quickly began to upbraid me for my opposition to the British. The King of England was a very powerful prince, he said, a very powerful prince, and it was a great pity that the colonists had fallen out with him. But as we had, we must abide by the consequences. I had no inclination to waste the shafts of my rhetoric upon a negro slave. I concluded he had heard his better say so. As the old cock crows, so crows the young one. And I thought, as the white cock crows, so crows the black one. He ran away from his master, before I left there, and went to Long Island to assist King George. But it seems the King of Terrors was more potent than King George, for his master had certain intelligence that poor Cuff was laid flat on his back. This man had likewise a negress who, as he was a widower, kept his house. She was as great a doctress as Cuff was a politician, and she wished to be a surgeon. There was an annual thanksgiving while we were here. The sick men of my ward had procured a fine roasting pig, and the old negro woman, having seen the syringe that I picked up in the retreat from Kipps Bay, fell violently in love with it, and offered me a number of pies of one sort or other for it. Of the pig and the pies we made an excellent Thanksgiving dinner, the best meal I had eaten since I left my grandsire's table. Our surgeon came amongst us soon after this, and packed us all off to camp, save two or three who were discharged. I arrived at camp with the rest, where we remained, moving from place to place as occasion required, undergoing hunger, cold, and fatigue, until the twenty-fifth day of December, 1776, when I was discharged, my term of service having expired, at Phillips Manor, in the state of New York, near Hudson's River. Here ends my first campaign. I had learned something of a soldier's life, enough, I thought, to keep me at home for the future. Indeed, I was then fully determined to rest easy with the knowledge I had acquired in the affairs of the army. But the reader will find, if he has patience to follow me a little longer in my details, that the case of a winter spent at home caused me to alter my mind. I had several kind invitations to enlist into the standing army, then about to be raised, especially a very pressing one to engage in a regiment of horse, but I concluded to try a short journey on foot first. 
Accordingly, I sat off from my good old grandsire's, where I arrived, I think, on the 27th, two days after my discharge, and found my friends all alive and well. They appeared to be glad to see me, and I am sure I was really glad to see them. End of chapter 2, part 2